celebrating Palm Sunday, which is today. And on Palm Sunday, we reflect on uh, the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if that story is not very familiar to you, I hope that when you leave today, it will be more familiar to you. And if that story perhaps is familiar to you, but it doesn't really have a whole lot of practical application to your life, hopefully when you leave today, it will. So let's begin by looking at our text together. It is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Let's see what it says. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where you're entering, and you will find a colt tied, on which one who has never sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You'll say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their, clo their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that might make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here we have one account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, this is in all four gospel accounts. Um, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 11, Luke, of course, the passage we're reading today, and that's also found in John chapter 12. So not all of our stories are found in every one of the gospel accounts. Now, I'll say this about that. How has God chosen so to deliver to us the events that took place during Jesus' life and ministry? Did he choose to reveal himself fully through the gospel of Matthew? No. Did he choose to reveal himself fully through just Luke or just John or just Mark? No. He chose to reveal that story through the compilation of all four gospel accounts. Okay, so we have four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, all the events surrounding it. We need to take into account all four of the gospel accounts to see what God has revealed to us, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll do that this morning. We're going to reference a few of the other gospel accounts to look and see uh, what's being said in this story and understand it a little bit better. Okay, but let's look at verse 28. It says, When they had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, let's stop right there. He's giving us some geographical detail here, and I just want us to all be on the same page with that. Here's a map. Okay, so at the bottom right on your screen, you see Bethany. 
And it's represented there by a pretty, pretty small village. Okay? Moving down the yellow line, there's Bethphage, which is, it says he drew near. Now, in John chapter 12, we're given a little bit more information. John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, who lived in Bethany? Significantly, Lazarus did. You remember the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So Jesus came to Bethany, and he spent the night, or possibly two days. Okay, He spent the night there at Bethany, and then it says he drew near Bethphage. Now, you see an even smaller place next on that yellow line. Okay, If we're starting in Bethany and we're moving up, soon he's going to come and we follow that yellow line, and it draws towards Jerusalem. Okay, so there's, if you keep going down that yellow line, he's going to go through the Mount of Olives, which you see all those trees right there. He's going to go through the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come down, and he's going to go into that east gate there at the temple. Now, we talked about the temple here a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, Jesus going into the temple, turning over the tables. And we talked about that white area right there. That's the court of the Gentiles. Remember that? So Jesus is entering the backside of, of, uh, of the temple right there when he comes in. Bethany, by the way, means the house of dates, which is kind of significant as we look a little bit closer at what happens. I just want to keep that in mind. Now, it says it was six days before the Passover. Here's what happened in Jerusalem during the Passover time. All right, the Passover happened on the 14th of the month of Nisan. It always happened at that time. And when it happened, you remember that all the people would come to Jerusalem. They would come to Jerusalem because they were required to come three times a year. Do you remember we talked about that? They were required, required to come. And when they come, they can't come empty-handed. So when they came, they had to come. They had to bring sacrifice. And, of course, at this time, it was the Passover. Um, now, this, remember, is the third account that we're talking about. Last time we were talking about the first account. This time we're talking about the third account. So this is the end of Jesus' life and ministry here. This is the last Passover. Of course, Jesus is only going to be alive, at least speaking in this term, uh, for just a few more days. Okay, on Friday of this week, he will be crucified. And on Sunday, one week from today, he will be resurrected. Okay, so just a few days away. But here's what was happening in Jerusalem. There are discrepancies about this. The low estimate is that the normal population of Jerusalem was 50,000 people. That's the low estimate. On a high estimate, the population of Jerusalem was between one and 200,000 people. They don't really know. But what they do know is that the, the population of Jerusalem would swell significantly during Passover. Of course it would, because you have all these people from the surrounding places coming to Jerusalem. So the estimate is that it would either swell to about 250,000 or, on a high estimate, 2 million. There were a lot of people. Zoom out there. Here's, here's a full picture of what's going on. That's, that's Jerusalem right there. Okay, imagine all these people crammed in to this city. So can we understand already how there were crowds of people? Right? So there are crowds of people here soon that will do something for Jesus. So there are people just everywhere. Have you ever been somewhere and you say, you can't fit another person in here because there's so many people? There were tons of people here for Passover. Okay, so this is also why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He needed to go to Jerusalem too. Of course, he had different intention in mind. The Passover lamb was going to be himself rather than a lamb. All right, so um, 
this is what's happening. This is the geographical situation. This is what's happening historically. Okay, there's a bunch of people going to Jerusalem at this time. It's just a few days before Passover. So we are starting the week of Passover. We are starting. We are on Palm Sunday. Why, are we, why is it called Palm Sunday? We'll get to that. Let's look uh, at verse 30. We're going to continue on. It says, As he drew near, he sent two of the disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and upon entering it you will find a colt tied. Now, He's in Bethany, and he says, go to the village ahead of you, which would be Bethphage, which is a small little village there. He's in Bethany, which is already pretty small, and he says, go to that little village just up ahead. It's not far, and as soon as you get there, you're going to find a colt tied. And uh, he says, on this colt, no one's ever sat on it. It's a, it's a young donkey. Untie it, bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you'll say this, the Lord has need of it. Okay? And... They went, and of course, they found things just like Jesus had told them it would be. So here's a prediction. Jesus is making some predictions here. And uh, he says, first of all, that you're going to find a colt. In Matthew 21, it says a donkey and a colt with her. That is, a mother, donkey, and her baby. Okay? That's what Matthew says. In John, it says a young donkey. Mark says a colt. It's a colt. All that matters is we're talking about a young donkey here. It's not a little baby because Jesus couldn't ride on a baby donkey. But it is growing up. It's still a young donkey. It needs its mother, obviously still. It's hanging around close to its mother. But it's never been ridden before. Now, you might say, well, right, because people don't ride donkeys. But they did. They did ride donkeys. Okay, it was very common that people would ride donkeys. So not a strange situation here that Jesus wanted to ride on a donkey, except for one thing, and we'll see that. But here's what he says. As soon as you go into the city, you're going to find a young colt, and he's going to be tied up. Now, Jesus, someone were to make a prediction to you, and they were to say, okay, I'm going to send you over to that next village, and as soon as you get in there, you're going to find a donkey tied up. And you walk in there, and of course you see it exactly like they had said. All right? And at the time, you know, he, Jesus couldn't call someone on his cell phone and say, hey, make sure you have that donkey tied up because I'm sending him right now. That didn't happen. Jesus knew. Right? Jesus made a prediction. Of course, it was a correct prediction. How can that be? And then also he said, if anyone asks you about why you're untying it and taking it, all you need to say to him is the Lord has need of it and everything will be okay. Okay? So you walk up to a stranger's property there is a young donkey, and you say, well, Jesus told us to just untie it and take it, so I mean, I guess that's what we'll do. It kind of seems like stealing, which Jesus wouldn't want us to do, but at the same time, did Jesus anticipate that they would actually be given permission? Well, yes, he did, because he says, if anybody asks you, by the way, they will, so I'm going to tell you what to say exactly. As soon as you start untying it, someone's going to ask you, and Luke tells us it's the owners. The owners of the donkey come up to him, and they say, what are you doing? Why are you untying this colt? Because it's not yours. They say, well, the Lord has need of it. And immediately they say, okay, take it. So what does this tell us? That the people knew of Jesus. They were followers of his. Is it anything he wants? Take it. It's yours. There was no fight put up. They knew who he was. Okay, so a couple different predictions here. It's very similar to the prediction that will be made in Luke 22. Do you remember this one? Talking about the, uh, where are they going to eat the Passover meal together? They came, and it was the day of the unleavened bread, which is the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. And Peter and John were, he, Jesus said to Peter and John, go prepare a Passover so that we might eat it. But they said, where should we prepare the meal? And he said, 
when you enter the city, there will be a man carrying a jar of water, and he will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And the master of the house, tell him, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I might eat Passover? He will show you a large upper room, and it will be furnished and prepared there. That's a lot of predictions there too, right? But of course, they come exactly to the detail true. It's a true account. Jesus knew exactly what, what, what do we gather from these predictions? Uh, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, we see that there is a divine plan. We see that there's a divine plan here in place. I just want to reference two passages here. The first is Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Listen to the wording here. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. God has a particular plan for what Jesus will be doing. Jesus knows the plan, but also the plan goes into so much more detail that I think sometimes we're not aware of. Don't you know the plan was more specific than I will send my son to the earth and he will be crucified? There's a lot of other details that needed to happen in order to make sure that actually happened, right? There was a definite plan put in place. Listen to it this way. This is Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, we know about that, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Listen to that language. Who's in charge of this situation? God is to the very smallest detail. Isn't that comforting? Do you believe that God is in control of your life just the same? Is it possible that there could be a sovereign God who is in charge of even the smallest details of your life? I believe there is. We get a glimpse here to the fact that God has a detailed plan for this situation. Second thing I want us to notice is this, is that there is a divine nature. We see the divine nature of Christ in this situation. How could he ever predict things down to the smallest detail? Well, because he knows the Father. He knows the plans of the Father, at least those of which have been revealed to him at that time, because he says some things are the Father's alone, and the Son does not know him, right? Remember he said that? So, but this plan was revealed to Jesus in detail, and he knew exactly what was about to unfold. And so we see the relationship here between the Father and the Son, and we see the divinity of Jesus in this circumstance just want to remind you of Colossians 1, 15, and 15 through 17. Remember what it says. He, who's he? Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, or donkeys and their owners. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Of what consequence is a donkey or a room? He owns them all, and all these things exist for him. Why? Because he created them. He created them for himself. Did you see that he placed this donkey there for himself? He created it. He placed it there. He created the owner, and he placed them there. He created the, up, the upper room. He created that building. He created the owner of the upper room. He created the situation for himself. Do you think that includes all things? Am I going beyond the bounds of all things when I say a room and a donkey and a person? I believe those are included in all things, right? All things were created for him 
and through him. It includes this situation. Matthew also reminds us, and John in chapter 12, during this same account, Matthew 21, 5, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. These things took place, Jesus getting the donkey and sitting on it, these things took place to fulfill prophecy. Do you think, well, let's read the prophecy. He quotes Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This sounds a lot like Jesus. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, Zechariah 9.9. This was written far before Jesus came into the picture, at least on earth. All right. Do you think that Jesus was familiar with this prophecy? Do you think it's possible? Do you think he knew what he was doing? When he put that donkey in place and said, now is the time, go get the donkey. I'm about to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. Go get it. Was there a chance that it wouldn't happen? Was there a chance that the donkey had died from an illness? Was there a chance that Jesus made a prediction and it didn't come true? No. It's not a chance. Jesus was calling himself. This is very insignificant. Jesus was calling himself the Messiah when he said, go get the donkey. I am bringing salvation, and I'm coming humble, mounted on a, do on a donkey. Pretty amazing. So another thing that's significant is, you know, a lot of the people saw Jesus as the king. We're going to see that here in just a second. How significant would it be to have a king, a great, glorious king, in fact, the king of the universe, and he says, go get my animal. I'm coming into the city. And it's a little baby donkey. Little tiny donkey. What kind, of, what kind of presence is that? I think if you're familiar with the movie Aladdin, what, what kind of animal did he have? He made a big presence. He came riding on an elephant. Do you remember that? I remember that pretty well. That's from my childhood. It's ingrained in my soul. Okay? <laughs> so when you come as a king into a city, you're going to take that thing over. What are you going to choose? An intimidating, large animal. A war horse. And what does it say? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And how am I going to do it? Not with a bigger animal, but humble, on a donkey. Because I'm not coming to create war. What is he coming to establish? His rule will be from sea to sea. How? He's going to speak peace to the nations. Do you see? He's coming to bring peace and not war. What kind of peace? We've talked about that a lot. What kind of peace did he bring? And in fact, we'll get to that here at the end of the story but I think we know the answer to that already. He didn't come to bring peace here. He came to bring peace here, right? Okay, so here's what I want to say about this. If you want to participate in the exaltation of Christ, then you must also participate in the humiliation of Christ. If you want to participate in the exaltation of Christ, was he exalted? Is he exalted? Yes. Was he humiliated? Yes. Was he humble? Yes. Those two words are very connected, right? To be humble. Humiliation. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. I have a lot of scripture this morning. That's why I have it on the screen for you. Okay, I also have the references in your notes. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Stop right there. We could spend all morning on that. I won't, but I'm just saying we could. All right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's about to give us an example of the mind of Christ, and we ought to have that mind as well. We should not think about ourselves only, but to think about others. Look not into your owners. Look to the interests of others. In fact, this is what Christ did. Do you want to be like Christ? Well, then have the mind of Christ. Here's what he did. He was in the form of God, though he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Continues on. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, through this humiliation, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of, glory of God the Father. Now on this day when he comes riding in the triumphal entry, and the people are shouting to him, did every tongue confess Jesus is Lord? No. In just a few days, in fact, most people are going to be shouting, crucify him. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Make no doubt about it. It will happen. It's written as a definite plan of God. It will happen. Remind you of two other passages, James 4.10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. You want to be like Christ? Humble yourself. That's difficult. The king of the universe had every right to exalt himself on earth, but he chose to humble himself. And the scriptures tell us, you want to be like Christ? Have the mind of Christ. Humble yourself. Did Christ come to earth with his own interest in mind or the interest of humanity? Let's continue on. Verse 36. It says, okay, so here's what we have so far. Jesus says, sends them in. They get uh, the donkey. They brought it to Jesus, and they set him on it. I think that's, that's kind of a funny wording. You have a picture of some guys picking Jesus up and setting him on a donkey. Uh, that's just funny to me. I don't know why. Verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, the only they mentioned so far are the disciples. Verse 37, but as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay, so the whole magnitude of his disciples includes, according to John 12, 17 and 18, the people who had witnessed or heard about the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So there was a group of people who had heard that Jesus had raised a man from the dead, Lazarus. Now, Lazarus lived very close to Jerusalem, right? The word about Lazarus had spread, and the people heard about it. 
So there are many people gathered together. How many? We don't know, but it, it sounds like it's thousands. Many say tens of thousands of people are gathered together. And it says, all for all the mighty works that they had seen, they gathered together. And it says they threw their cloaks on the ground. Let's talk about the cloaks. Why cloaks? I think it's probably self-explanatory here, but cloaks are for royalty, right? Second uh, Kings 9, 12, and 13. They said that this is not true. Tell us now. He said, thus he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Okay, so they're, they're, they're anointing a new king over Israel. This is also happening in our story, right? There's a new king in Israel. And in haste, every man took his garment off, and they put it under the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet, and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. That's just an example of what was happening here. It says that when a new king was anointed, what did they do immediately? They, all, they took off their coats and they laid it on the ground because how dare royalty step on the ground? It's almost like the old thing where a man will take off his jacket, lay it over a puddle so the woman doesn't get wet, right? Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever done that. Uh, I never have. You know what? I want to, though. I'm going to do that one day. man is not in here. I'm going to do that one day. You're laughing at me, Casey, but I'm going to do it. I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, I'm going to do it. And all, all three, all, all, well, I guess there's four of them. All four of them can walk across. <laughs> I forget about the little one. I don't really forget about her, okay? <clears throat> uh, all right, so this is what happens. There is honor. There is respect, right? Royalty, don't, I don't, I don't want any, we're not going to protect him. Don't want anything to happen. So this was the idea, okay? It, it became traditional, Okay, so they take their, their cloaks off, which they would have had. They live in the mountains. It's probably kind of breezy up there. So they, they commonly had these, these garments that they would wear. They take them off, lay them on the ground. And as Jesus was coming down the line, there were so many thousands of people that the disciples did it at first. And then the, the crowds see it, and they all start. They do this. They see what the disciples do. They take off their cloak. They lay it on the ground. And the ground is covered with all these jackets, cloaks on the ground. As he's coming on the donkey, what a, are you imagining this like I am? What a funny-looking scene, right? But kind of what an amazing scene to see all this happening. He says, at least Luke does, this is what the crowd was saying. Blessed is the king, so an anointing of a new king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now for, for Luke, he has his Gentile readers in mind. Remember, Luke was very... Uh, research-based, right? And he's not thinking in necessarily just a Jewish audience here, so he's not going to allude to things that they might not understand. So he doesn't, uh, you know, enter in some of these Jewish phrases, which the other accounts do. I'm going to show you in a second. Because this isn't the normal wording that we hear when this happens. What word do we hear? Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Right? That's what they normally say, but that's not what Luke says they said. Now, why does he say this? It's to help his readers understand. He's alluding back to when. When else do we hear glory in the highest, peace in heaven, glory in the highest? So it's during the birth. That's what the angels announced to the shepherds, right? So he's saying, here it is. You see the picture coming together? Glory to God in the highest. How is God going to receive glory? Through the new king. Okay, so he's, he's tying his picture together. Here's what the others say. Luke says, blessed is the king. Matthew says, blessed is he. John says, blessed is he, even the king of Israel, right? I want to also say here, have you noticed that we haven't said anything about palm branches? There are no palm branches no mentioned in this story so far. 
Luke doesn't mention the palm branches, he mentions the cloaks, because for him that was a significant event. But we know for certain that God didn't choose to just reveal to us what happened in one account, but he gave us several. So we know that there were palm branches involved. What kind of palm branches? Uh, branches? What did I say? Branets? Palm, palm branches? They were from date palms. Remember what Bethany was called? Okay. There were date trees, date palms all over. And so they grabbed these, these leaves from the date palms and, and they, uh, they spread them out. What? Oh, uh, uh, let's see. If you want to read that, Mark says leafy branches they had cut from the fields. Matthew says cut branches from the trees. John says branches of palm trees. That is in John 12, 13. That's the only account that mentions palm anything is in John 12, 13. Okay, what are the branches for? We know that the cloaks are representational of, 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 uh, of royalty coming through. But what about the branches? Do they serve the same thing? And they don't. They have a different purpose. The branches are for victory. I'll show you. The branches are for victory. By the way, I'm not just saying, hey, that's a cool little application. I'm saying this is what it meant. All right? This is, this is why they were doing it. And I want to show you that they knew what they were doing. All right? They, they picked the palm branches for a reason. It was because they were in victory. Leviticus 23.40. You shall take on the first day fruit, the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Do you see that? Okay? The branches of the palm trees are connected with Rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and people of the language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, so again we have palm branches in their hands waving them, palm branches in their hand. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God. What does salvation mean? They have been saved. There has been a victory, and so we are rejoicing. God is our victory, and so we are rejoicing. I have one more here, and, and I'm going to quote this. I'm going to make a little caveat here first, but I'm going to quote it. I'm about to quote something that is not Scripture, and I just want to make sure you know it is not Scripture what I'm about to reference here, but it does have historical significance. All right? It's from 1 Maccabees 13.51. All right? has a little bit of a historical account here. This is something that they did. It says, On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered with praise and palm branches with harps and cymbals, stringed instruments, hymns and songs, because the great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Why palm branches? Because they had just had a victory and they were praising God. So this is the reason for the palm branches, is that it became significant to them. The palm branches represented victory in God and celebration and praise. And what were they shouting? According to the other accounts, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest. Of course, Hosanna, you probably already know. Hosanna means, Lord, save now. Save now, we pray. That's what it means. 
And they were crying out, Hosanna, and rejoicing in the fact that they had just had um, victory through Jesus Christ because they see him as their king. Okay, so this is the picture so far. We're going to continue on. This is the picture. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It says some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him. Now, what was the crowd doing? The crowd had palm branches. They were laying down their cloaks. And some of the Pharisees were part of that crowd. It's very likely the case that these Pharisees were participating. That they said, okay, yeah, this is great. A king, fantastic. But... Wait a minute. Blessed is, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Wait, they said, I don't think I agree with this. Jesus, teacher. See, they're acknowledging him as teacher. Teacher, rebuke them. Do you realize what they're calling you? He said, oh, yeah. And if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because I made them for me too. And if the rocks could cry out that I am their creator and savior and you can't, there's probably a big problem. Verse, uh, let's, let's continue on here. Verse 41. When he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will make a barricade around you. They'll surround you. They'll hem you in on every side. They'll tear you down to the ground, your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Condemnation on the people. In fact, many of the people who were there saying, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. They were waving palm branches. And then the crowds gathered later, not even a week later, saying, crucify him. He knew the hearts of the people. Remember John says, for he knows what is in man. He doesn't mean man to give an account for himself. He knows what's in their heart. Here's some of the things that he says. Look, look at the, by the way, I'm going to draw a parallel here. It's pretty unbelievable. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan this. But there are exact parallels to what we looked at last week in Isaiah 29. Look at this. Verse 42, their eyes will be blind. Remember right. Isaiah 29, it says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and he has closed your eyes. He has made you blind. 1943, they will be surrounded. Isaiah 29.3, I will encamp against you all around you and besiege you. Do you remember that? Verse 44, and there will be destruction. Isaiah 29, 5 and 6. The multitude of your foreign foes will be like small dust, the magnitude of this passing chaff. In an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord. There will be earthquake, great noise, devouring fire. Exact parallels here to what's happening. What was the city that they were talking about in Isaiah 29? Jerusalem. What's the city he's talking about now? Jerusalem. Pretty interesting, don't you think? Jesus says you can't see. You're blind. Who sent the blindness on the people? God himself did. He says, you're not going to be able to see. In fact, some of you are here and you can't see me even though I'm right in front of your face. 
and you will be blind, and you will be surrounded, and you will be destroyed. Here's the thing that he says. Would that you would know on this day the things that make for peace. This final point of application I want you to see this morning is that the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, Jesus is the only one who can save you from your enemy. Now, that seems like a pretty basic statement, but let me tell you what I mean by that. The people were shouting in victory that Jesus had saved them. But to others, he wept because they were blind. And they couldn't see the things that make for peace. And they didn't know, they couldn't see, they didn't understand their time of visitation. When Jesus was coming into the city and he was visiting them, although they saw him, they didn't see him. Although they heard him, they didn't hear him. What does that mean? What are the things that make for peace? Don't you want to know? This is what they were condemned for. They couldn't see the things that made for peace. They didn't know the time of their visitation. Don't you want to know the things that make for peace so Jesus doesn't condemn you like this too? Don't you want to know the time of your visitation so that you might be prepared and you wouldn't be swept away? I want to know. What are the things that make for peace? I, I want to know that. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. It says, But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Peace. Jesus himself is our peace. So what are the things that make for peace? Well, it seems like Jesus himself is the thing that makes for peace. Why do we need peace? What is the hostility? Why is there hostility? I want to take you through a couple of passages in Romans. And this is where we're going to end today. So I'd like for you to turn to Romans with me. We're going to, again, we're going to look at three passages from the book of Romans. First, we'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Now again... I just want to make sure you understand where we're going with this, is that Jesus said, he wept over Jerusalem, and he said, I, I, I wish that you had known the things that make for peace, but you don't see them, you're blind to it. I wish that you had known the time of your visitation, but you didn't see it, it passed right by you. And so therefore, you will be destroyed. Peace will not come to you. What is he talking about? Romans 8, 1 through 3. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for us, He condemns sin in the flesh. Now go down to verse 6. It says, For to set, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Therefore, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What is the hostility? Why do we need 
peace because the natural man in his flesh cannot please God. And when you cannot please a holy God, there is wrath to pay. That's the hostility. What is the hostility? The hostility is between God and man. Jesus came to bring peace. He came to establish himself as the Prince of Peace, as the King, by establishing peace between God and man. This was his aim. This was his goal. This was his purpose. Flip back a little bit to Romans chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 9 through 11. Romans 5 verses 9 through 11 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more then shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through, our, through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus is the only one who can save you from your enemy. In fact, we were the enemy, and we had an enemy. We were enemies of God because we couldn't obey Him. We couldn't submit to His law. We couldn't. We were natural in our flesh. We didn't have the Spirit. So we couldn't submit to God's law, and that made, us, that made hostility between God and man. Jesus came bringing peace, establishing peace between God and and man, Jesus came as king victorious over our enemies. What are our enemies? Our enemies are not the bad situations in your life. Your enemy is not your sickness. Your enemy is not your bad thoughts. Your enemy isn't that you only have $2 in your bank account. Your enemy is not any of that. The enemy is not the bad stuff that happens in your life. But the enemy is sin itself, sin and death. And Jesus came conquering to conquer, and he came and he conquered sin and death. In fact, sin, death, it says, will be the last enemy to be destroyed completely, and that happens when Jesus comes back. Now, how does that make sense? A lot of these theological details have a hard time coming together when we start talking about things that aren't yet to be or they have not yet come. When we talk about stuff in the past, isn't it kind of a little bit easier to wrap our minds around? But when we start to talk about stuff that has yet to happen, it's a little bit diff more difficult sometimes. But here's what I'm saying. If Jesus Christ came riding in on this little donkey, right, coming to establish peace, coming humble, he didn't come to take over the government and overthrow things and make it better, in fact, that's what they wanted him to do, and that's why they got so mad at him. And that's why I said, why aren't you going to do anything? Kill him. He's obviously not the Messiah. Because he didn't do what they had expected. Jesus came in conquering. He came in as the king. He died as the king. He rose as the king. He lives as the king today. How was this a triumphal entry? What was he triumphing over? 
In fact, it seems like a pretty dreary entry, knowing that in just a few days, the crowds that were once praising his name would say, crucify him. But then just a couple of days later, he would be raised back to life because knowing that he would be raised from the dead, he came in conquering. Here's the application that we need to walk away from today. Many times, Jesus does not meet your natural expectations, but he does something very different. You need to be careful in that moment to not make Jesus meet your expectations. He will do what he's going to do. He is the king. He sets the ground. His word is what goes. In fact, if he says something, there's no one who can say different. If he wants to come in on a donkey, he's coming in on a donkey. If he's coming in and he's not going to take over the city by force, he's not going to take it over. Okay? He's going to do things his way according to his plan and his purpose. I suppose we need to put ourselves in the crowd. Here comes Jesus on the donkey. We know that he raised a guy from the dead. Awesome story. That's really cool. I'm going to write a journal about that. But soon, the next day, Jesus comes into the city, and you know what another account says? He looked around, and it was already late, so he went back to Bethany. You know that's what he did? He came and he looked around, and he went back. Now, there's another account that talks about Jesus going to the temple and overturning uh, the money changers again and, and things like that, and many believe that happened actually on the next day. He didn't do that right away. But he went, home, he went back to Bethany because it was already late in the day. So the big triumphal entry climaxes with Jesus coming into the city, people saying, Hosanna in the highest, victorious, celebrating. And he comes and he looks around and he says, it's getting kind of late. I think I'm going to go back, go to bed. What are you doing? Now's your time. Jesus, do something. And there we have ourselves, right? One day we're praising Jesus for his all-conquering power, and the next day we're saying, uh, you missed your opportunity, Jesus. You missed your opportunity to do something here. Uh, guess he's not the Messiah after all. He hasn't missed his opportunity. Jesus is the king. And he will do what he pleases in his own time and in his own way. God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. Be careful that you don't try to demand something of Jesus that he is not. Don't get irritated when he doesn't act, when you want him to act. He knows better than you. I'm talking to myself too, okay? I haven't perfected this. Many times he does things differently than we would like them to be, but never forget that he is the king. Continually, every day, we need to be saying, no matter what the circumstance, even if he comes in and he just looks around and he says, I'm going to go home for a while. Even on that day when it seems as though Jesus is passive, praise him. On the day when Jesus comes and it seems like he's been cut off because he's died, praise him. On the day when you go to the cave and he's not there, praise him. Do you see that he's unfolding a plan? 
All things were created by him. All things were created for him to the praise of his glory. We need to be a people who learn to praise the name of God in all of our circumstances. Even when it seems to us that this great king isn't fulfilling all that we think a king should do. Let's pray.